Support for this podcast comes from San Francisco International Airport. At SFO, you can discover award-winning flavors and unique shops all before takeoff. Learn more about what's at SFO at flysfo.com. Hey there, this is Brittany Luce from NPR's It's Been a Minute. KQED's podcasts like The Bay, Bay Curious, Mind Shift, Right Nowish, and more all tell the stories of the Bay and beyond with reliable, human-centered journalism. They aim to inspire, make you think, entertain, and expand your understanding of the place you call home. Here's how you can support podcasting at KQED. Showing your support is easy, and you can join Brittany in supporting KQED Podcast too at donate.kqed.org slash podcast. That's donate.kqed.org slash podcast. From KQED. From KQED in San Francisco, I'm Alexis Madrigal. Stanford President Mark Tessier-Levine announced his plan to resign last week amid scandal at one of the nation's most prestigious universities. The case is complex. An investigation by a special science committee at Stanford did not find that Tessier-Levine himself falsified figures or data in papers he co-authored, but several papers did contain manipulated images, including some in the most prominent journals like Science and Nature. Perhaps the most remarkable fact about the resignation is that a freshman on the Stanford newspaper was responsible for following up on allegations that had been floating around the scientific community. We talk with that young journalist and the future of Stanford. It's coming up next, right after this news. Welcome to Forum. I'm Alexis Madrigal. Open up the big PDF that contains Stanford's investigation into its soon-to-be-former president, Mark Tessier-Levine, and you'll see that much of the evidence revolves around the images included in a series of papers over the last 20 years. To the untrained eye, the modifications that the investigation details might not seem like a huge deal, but modern science relies on images to represent underlying complex data, and often it's the figures that really tell the story of a set of experiments. For years, those figures were called into question by other scientists on the insidery site PubPeer, but it wasn't until Theo Baker, a freshman reporter at the Stanford Daily, dug into the story and made the allegations of misconduct front page news on campus that the reckoning really began. We begin this morning with Theo Baker. Welcome to the show. Thanks so much for having me. So I want to talk to you a little bit about how you learned about the allegations and then how you went into, you know, into action, into investigating them. Talk to me a little about what you'd seen when you were, you know, looking at PubPeer. Yeah. So um, as you said, there is a site called PubPeer um, and and actually floating around since about 2015 um, is basically what I found uh, in the winter of 2022 when I started my investigations, or I guess the autumn it was uh, in reality. Um, what I saw were these anonymous comments, people who were wondering, hey, this image looks like it's been spliced. This gel band looks like it is not uh, the way that it should be if it's trying to tell the story that the uh, the paper is having it tell. Um, these were people who were asking questions more than they were making allegations. Uh, and so what I did is I, I took those uh, questions about various papers uh, Tessier Levine was a co-author on, and I took them to uh, you know real life forensic image analysts, uh, experts in the field 
people who could tell me whether there was any validity to them. And lo and behold, uh, it seemed like there was some validity to it, that these images had been manipulated or photoshopped. Uh, and it wasn't just the papers that had been identified on PubPeer. Um, obviously, you know, we've been investigating this for more than eight months and the number of papers has uh, crept up and up and up. Mm -hmm. You know, it's, it's interesting. How did you find yourself on PubPeer to begin with? Had you gotten a tip? Were you just, do you just like spending your time on scientific misconduct websites? Like what happened here? I actually had not heard of Pub Here before I, I started uh, in on this story. Um, I got a, I was texted a link to a blog post someone found interesting about scientific misconduct, and that obliquely had a link to Pub Here, and that got me started on all of this. Uh, I sort of stumbled into it more than anything else. Wow. When did you know that this was going to be a, a huge story? Well, I'm not sure I knew it was going to turn into this, uh, you know, for a long time, even after the first few articles came out. Um, obviously, at this point, you know, I've published probably close to 20 articles about this. Mm -hmm. um, and so it's in little incremental steps that everything became more and more and more serious. Um, I, I do, you know, I remember very distinctly that the first time I actually thought, okay, well, it seems like this really is something, um, was when I had my first of many long conversations with Elizabeth Bick, uh, who is a superstar image manipulation uh, spotter. She's been featured in the New Yorker and Nature and Science. She's caused over a thousand retractions in her time. Uh, and what she does is just exactly this type of analysis. And she was willing to sit down and, you know, walk through all of these papers with me for hours on end, uh, and, and that actually, um, I, I remember after that thinking, Jesus Christ, this is actually something, and this is really odd. Yeah. Um, some people may know, but both of your parents are, are also journalists at the, the New York times and, uh, and at the New Yorker, did you go to them with this at some point, or was this the kind of thing where you wanted to strike out on your own? <laughs> you know, they, they would be very good resources, but I could see how you might want to <laughs> just discuss it with your editor. Yeah, no, I didn't. I didn't talk to them uh, about this. They didn't see the art. They've not seen the articles before they go out. Um, you know, they're, they're not involved. And that's a very intentional choice. Um, mm -hmm. You know, obviously, you're right to say that at a lot of points, it would have been a lot easier for me. Um, you know, one thing that's interesting about doing this work as a student journalist, rather than someone at, at a larger news organization with some built in credibility is that people don't talk to you at first, um, they have no reason to they don't trust you, uh, you know, just because you're a reporter. And so what that meant is that our first investigation basically was just an open source investigation. It was looking at things that were hidden in plain sight that anyone could have had access to. And then after we published, you know, 10 articles and it was clear that we were taking seriously, that we were doing our due diligence, then more people started to talk to us. More people were willing to recognize um, that, that we were going to take this seriously. Yeah. You know, the university then responded in various ways, you know, created an investigatory committee and then revised it. Can you tell us a little bit about that? Because that turned into kind of part of the overall investigation for you. Yeah, I mean, you're right to say that that was just sort of another story for us. So the board of trustees opened an investigation the day we published our article. Um, technically, it was the same day. We published a little bit after midnight. And so it was uh, in the afternoon, they opened an investigation into Tessie Levine's involvement in these manipulated images. Um, but that was not an independent investigation. At first, it was uh, being marshaled by a special committee that they appointed from the Board of Trustees. And of course, um, we quickly revealed that one of the people that was appointed up to that special committee had an $18 million investment in a company co-founded by Tessie Levine. 
Um, after that, people were raising a lot of a lot of alarm bells about um, the ability of this investigation to to get at the facts, and also because it had been announced in uh, a statement from Jerry Yang, the chair of the board of trustees, that praised uh, that went out of its way to praise Tessier Levine for his quote integrity and honor, and for something that is uh, you know supposed to be opening up a fact finding investigation into whether or not there was scientific integrity. Um, I think that set out set off some alarm bells for outside observers. Um, and so in the process of this, we've certainly done a, a bunch of reporting on what that committee has mm -hmm. looked like. Recently, we reported that um, it was unable to get access to a fair number of sources uh, inside Genentech for one of the specific uh, allegations, the most serious allegation, uh, because they were unwilling to promise anonymity uh, to people who were otherwise governed by non-disclosure agreements. Uh, and that was a non-starter, I think, for, uh, for a mm -hmm. number of sources. So now we do have their, at least their final report as it stands yeah. in our hands. Um, what do you think of it? Like, how do you feel like the university did a thorough and meaningful job in investigating the the allegations? So I, I'm, um, you know, I'm, I'm very gratified to see that they've released this whole report to the public. I think that's really important. Um, it's really important to know for people who haven't been following the story. Up until literally last week, we had no idea what the report would look like. We didn't know what they would be releasing. We didn't know what standards they would be using. We didn't even know exactly what they were looking for or how they were looking for it. Uh, and we still actually don't have answers to some of those questions. Um, so I think it's, you know, it's it's a really important uh, thing for the university to have opened this investigation and to make a, a, a diligent effort at fact finding. And certainly some of the findings in that report were quite remarkable. They found that Tessier Levine had been given opportunities over the course of two decades to correct the scientific record. And they said he consistently failed to do so. They found that he created a culture in his lab that rewarded the winners uh, and punished the losers, that is people who couldn't create the data he wanted. And that resulted in a high frequency, they put it, of uh, manipulated research. Um, it's sort of remarkable to see that in, in an investigation that was sponsored by the school. Um, obviously, uh, there are still gaps in, in, in the investigation. We're talking about the news of Stanford University President Mark Tessier-Levine's resignation, what it means for the prestigious school. Joined first by Theo Baker, Spotlight investigative reporter at the Stanford Daily. We want to hear your questions about the scandal and the resignations and what resignation and what it could mean for Stanford. You can give us a call. The number is 866-733-6786. That's 866-733-6786. The email is forum at kqed.org. You can find us on Twitter, Instagram, and threads. We are KQED Forum. I want to add a couple more guests to our conversation here. We're also joined by Lisa Krieger, research reporter with the San Jose Mercury News. Welcome, Lisa. Morning, Alexis. And we're joined by Jonathan Wilson, West Coast Biotech and Life Sciences reporter with Stat News. Welcome, Jonathan. Thanks for having me. Lisa, um, I want you to reflect a little bit on how unusual these kinds of allegations are or or how typical they are this seems to me just having followed this these this retraction kind of movement over the last couple uh, decades that there's been an increasing amount of scrutiny and attention on in particular this kind of image manipulation in papers um there is increasing scrutiny and for very good reason i just a little bit of history here i when all of this happened, it was the beginning of Photoshop and these uh, gels um, that we described uh, was being used and images were being scanned and submitted to journals. And 
science, the journals didn't really adapt well to these technological advances, and there was not the sort of oversight and screening and uh, standards and requirements that we have now. So um, what we have now are these preprints, which are fabulous. It's before a journal is printed. It goes out into the world and people assess it. Um, PubPeer, which um, Theo described, is, is also a really great forum. Um, and uh, there are some software tools that are a whole lot better now. And I think in general, the whole issue of integrity of, in science is really front and center right now in, in people's minds. And the standards have gotten high and there's a lot more transparency. And uh, we're catching things that, you know, back in the 90s were just flying through and we weren't catching. People like Elizabeth Beek, who is remarkable and um, just an extraordinary mind, extraordinary eye. Um, that we're catching things that have, have been out there for 10, 20 years raises the question, you know, what is the role of the of the principal investigator on these papers? And, and Jonathan, I know, can speak to that. Um, when you have these labs with many, many, many names on papers, a lot of people, this is big science, a lot of people with a lot of different jobs, um, but the buck stops with the principal investigator. Yeah. And then it, it leads to the issue of ChatGPT, which is our, our new challenge, and we can circle back to that if we have <laughs> yeah, time. For sure. Yeah. yeah, on the one hand, it's just fascinating because this is the data from these huge, incredibly expensive and complex, you know, multi-lab science experiments. And on the other hand, it's just pixels on somebody's computer, you know, and exactly. The, the, exactly. at that interface, there's some there's some very difficult things that have been happening. We're talking about the news that Stanford University President Mark Tessier Levine will resign. Joined by Theo Baker, investigations editor with the Stanford Daily, Lisa Krieger, research reporter with the San Jose Mercury News and Jonathan Wilson, West Coast Biotech and Life Sciences reporter with Stat News. We're going to take some of your calls about the, your questions about Tessie Levine's resignation and what it could mean for Stanford. Maybe you're a researcher. Have you felt pressure to provide, you know, winning results? Have you seen notable retractions from your institution? We'd love to hear from you. The number is 866-733-6786. The email is forum at kqed.org. You can find us on social media. We're KQED Forum. I'm Alexis Madrigal. Stay tuned. Support for Forum comes from San Francisco Opera. Set 10 years after a school shooting, the critically acclaimed opera Innocence takes us into a complex emotional journey where our understanding of innocence and guilt is constantly upended. Kaya Sariajo's ethereal score collapses the past into the present as a community of survivors grapple with how to move forward. Don't miss the highly anticipated American premiere of Innocence, June 1st through 21st. Learn more at sfopera.com. We've all got those parts of our house where the internet just won't go. Well, if you had wall-to-wall Wi-Fi from Xfinity, you could worry less about dead spots. Because with wall-to-wall Wi-Fi from Xfinity, you get fast speeds, reliable connection in every room, and power for all of your devices, even when everyone's online. That's wall-to-wall Wi-Fi only with Xfinity. Restrictions apply. Not available in all areas. Actual speeds vary. Welcome back to Forum. I'm Alexis Madrigal. We're talking about the resignation uh, or soon to be resignation of Stanford President Mark Tessier-Levine. 
and the scientific misconduct that led to it. Um, Theo Baker joins us from the Stanford Daily, Jonathan Wilson from Stat News, and Lisa Krieger from the San Jose Mercury News. Jonathan, I did want to ask you about how unusual you see this as being, and as Lisa mentioned before the break, kind of what role someone like Tessier Levine would actually even play in the actual conduct of this kind of big science? Yeah, that's that's a really great question. So I think Lisa started to touch on it, but uh, I think what's changed in the past couple of decades is really our ability to detect cases of image manipulation, but that doesn't necessarily mean these things are happening you know, more often. Um, in terms of how often they happen, just to kind of give you a, an example of a study that uh, actually Elizabeth Bick had done back in 2016, uh, you know, she and some colleagues looked through 20,000 papers that had been published between 1995 and 2014 and estimated that about 4% of those had image duplication mm -hmm. issues. Uh, in about half of those 4% of cases, they inferred that these weren't innocent mistakes, that they were actually deliberate manipulations. So maybe that's you know 2%. And now we're just talking about uh, images as opposed to other types of scientific data. So if you think about all the papers that are constantly being published by researchers around the world. Uh, these, these problems definitely happen more often than we talk about them more often than we write about them. So it, it is a, a much broader um, issue, which is one of the things that, that makes this really interesting and complicated. Uh, in terms of the role of the head of the lab, the professor, the principal investigator, that's interesting too, because you know we still have this narrative of uh, science being driven by sort of lone, very smart, hardworking individuals, but science is actually a team sport, and that team, those teams are getting larger and larger. Uh, so the people who get the credit typically are the people who run the lab, but they don't do the day-to-day -day experiments, right? They're not mm -hmm. working with the stem cells or the mice or the DNA. Those people are graduate students, postdocs, uh, staff scientists, visiting scientists, uh, and so, you know, what that means sometimes is that when there are issues with papers, there can be a little bit of a game of, of hot potato or, or pointing the finger in terms of who is ultimately uh, responsible. You know, the advisor may say they didn't you know, generate those results. Students will tend to point out that the people who are taking the credit should also take some responsibility. Um, you know, I think Tessier Levine and, and his statement ultimately did say something to the effect of, I take responsibility for the the work that happens in my lab. Uh, yeah, I spoke with some people who felt he should have done so even more wholeheartedly. But but part of the well, it, that part, was in the most yeah. recent statements, right? I mean, in the earlier statements, at one point he was listed as a co-author on a paper, and the university I think even put out a statement saying he had just provided some reagents, some some chemicals to the experiment, right? I mean, that felt to me like wait, but then why are you? Isn't that raising a whole other set of issues about what it is to be an author on a scientific paper? Well, that, that's a really good question. So, yeah, and you're right. So there, there were about 12 papers that the special committee had looked at. Um, in seven of those cases, you know, Tessia Levine was a middle co-author. Um, so, you know, the way that scientific papers work is generally the first author is the person who did most of the experiments. The last author is the person who supervised the work in whose lab all that stuff happened. Uh, and then you have everybody else. So those are people who made other smaller contributions. Um, and apparently in seven papers, that was 
more along the lines of, of Tessier, what Tessier Levine contributed uh, in terms of chemicals or mice. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and that does raise questions like, as you pointed out, whether he should have been an author on those papers. You know, you can put somebody in an acknowledgement section rather than having them as a listed author. Uh, at least from my own reporting, with talking with you know other researchers, I, it, it, it is sort of accepted that mm-hmm. there are middle authors on papers who make contributions that are worth acknowledging. Uh, but who you wouldn't reasonably expect uh, to be in tune with or accountable for, you know, every last mm-hmm. uh, piece of data. So, mm-hmm. you know, I think really the special committee's conclusions were much more critical uh, of Tessier Levine in cases where he was a so-called principal author, where he had really driven that project or supervised it. Mm-hmm. Let's bring in uh, Youssef down in Stanford. Welcome, Youssef. Hi, thanks for having me. Um, I'm actually a PhD student here at Stanford. I do uh, biophysics research. And a point I wanted to bring up is that we're talking about the culture that, you know, individual professors can have in individual labs. But I think something that hasn't really been addressed is sort of a broader issue where a lot of these postdocs or sometimes PhD students are international, you know, trainees. And for them to get a visa for them to stay permanently after their time of their PhD or postdoc, they need a pretty much a big paper that will get them a job that will allow them to get a visa or a green card, whether it's a professorship or maybe a post at a company. So maybe we need to examine sort of the culture that we've created in these labs with sort of the policies of what allows a trainee to stay in the country. One example I'll give is that in England, they just instituted a program where if you graduate from a, you know, a top university, they'll give you a visa for three or four years to stay in the country just to do whatever and figure it out. Mm. They consider you a high-value person. So maybe that's something we should be thinking about rather than just individual sort of cases. Yusuf, um, the other thing I'm curious about is, would you make other sort of systemic changes like to kind of what I would say is to protect um, students, graduate students and PhD students from these kind of the, the incentives that you're describing and maybe just like the raw pressure uh, that comes from, uh, uh, you know, an, an eminent scientist having a major, major controlling stake in your future. Yeah, I mean, really, there's, I mean, there's two things. One is security during the time you're there, and the other is security after. So I just spoke about security after, because obviously you need mm-hmm. a recommendation, and, you know, you need, you need, you know, connections to get you into that next position, which will let you maybe, you know, get a visa or a green card. But in terms of things that you can do that changes need to happen while you're inside a lab, um, I mean, again, I think it's really just, you know, basic sort of labor stuff, which is where maybe your employment is not dependent on the lab individually, but maybe it's tied to the university. Maybe you have wages that are a little bit higher so that, you know, maybe if you need to transition, you have a little bit more income than the, you know, the little bit amount of money that you make. Um, but yeah, I think those are more those are sort of the two sorts of things you need to consider yeah. while you're in the lab and when and after the lab. Yeah. Yusuf, thank you so much. That is um, really just a, a wonderful uh, perspective. Um, we also um, have a statement from the board of trustees, which I, uh, Theo, I wanted to, to toss this um, to you. 
Um, Jerry Yang, chair of Stanford's Board of Trustees, shared the following statement with us. This was a very robust and rigorous process. This was possible in foundational part because of the caliber and commitment of the scientific panel members, some of the foremost experts and leaders uh, in their fields. Um, how do you do you feel? How do you feel about this statement? Do you feel like it adequately captures um, where we are in this investigation? Yeah. Look, I mean, uh, I think it's 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 absolutely fair to say that the scientists that they've appointed to this panel are really fantastic members of the scientific community. Uh, you know, Shirley Tillman was the president of Princeton, uh, one of the most important women in science. Uh, Randy Sheckman, obviously a, a Nobel laureate, Steve Hyman, uh, former Harvard provost. Um, all of these people really are big names in their fields. Um, it is also, you know, probably fair to say that there, um, you know, can be really good people involved in something that still has gaps. Um, and that's, you know, absolutely not a, a criticism of the scientists, but a, an analysis um, of, you know, just the actual process that unfolded uh, where we have been able to, to, to do some reporting uh, into some of the people that were never reached by the committee or the people who refused to talk to the committee. Um, so again, it is possible to do something with good intentions and to uh, make a really strong attempt at it and to still also uh, have places where uh, you don't get access to the full story. Yeah. Um, Lisa Krieger, one of our listeners, Wanda, uh, has a question. Why does he still have a job at Stanford at all? Um, kind of questioning whether um, this punishment should have gone further. Um, a good point. So uh, there need to be transitions. And the reality is summer is very quiet on campuses. There are really no pressing issues that are happening over the next, that I'm aware of over the next couple of months. That'll all change this fall when uh, 10,000 students arrive and there's a lot more going on. Um, you can have a crisis instantly, um, which is why we, we've got a really strong interim who's Richard Seller, who's coming in. Um, uh, why does he, you know, why does he still have a job? So I think you asked me earlier, was this a surprise? And you look at John Hennessy, who was so successful for so long. And if, if it, you know, if something like this had happened when he was 10 years into the job, I don't know that people would have wanted him to resign because he was really, really, really successful. I don't know the same can be said for Tessie mm -hmm. Levine's um, uh, tenure there. He's super smart. He's hardworking. He tried really hard. I, I do think in general, he's a man of integrity um, and we all wish him the best, but I don't know that it's going to be remembered as a really successful tenure. And I don't know if it'll go down as a, a B or a C, um, but there were challenges that came up, um, many of which had nothing to do with him, um, but enormous challenges. Mm -hmm. And we, we can talk about some of what those were. He, he accomplished a lot. You know, he John Doerr, the VNVC, gave a gift of $1.2 billion. It was the largest in, in university history. He he reworked the the freshman level freshman curriculum, which was a big deal. Um, he's expanded the residential neighborhood concept, which was modeled after Harvard and some of the other Ivies. That's sort of mixed as to whether that's been a success or not. Um, but there were criticisms that he handled the, the pandemic poorly. People said there wasn't enough testing. Um, mm -hmm. They were upset that outdoor recreation was completely closed off. You know, tennis nets were brought down, basketball hoops were brought down. Mm -hmm. 
the Scott Atlas issue, it feels like forever, but it wasn't that long ago, um, special assistant to Donald Trump. Um, he didn't, the perception was that he didn't adequately support the faculty when they when they called out um, Atlas's ridiculous discouragement of use of masks and other protective measures. And then a few other things. There was the suicide of Katie Meyer. There was that college admissions bribery scandal. And you think all so, of those things played into this? Yes, exactly. That's that's where I was going. I think all of this played into this. And, you know, had he been a John Hennessy might have played out differently. Um, let's um, let's bring in another caller. Let's go to uh, John in Palo Alto. Welcome, John. Thank you. Thank you for having me in for the conversation. I was a graduate student in an Ivy League research university on the East Coast, and you know, I think two pillars that are very common in universities like Stanford or any large research institution in the U.S. It's competitiveness and trust, right? And those two things, I think, are really important in the system. They've made our labs and universities super, super, you know, renowned in research and obviously producing amazing work. But now that I'm in the life sciences industry where we do publish our work sometimes, one thing that is a big difference, right, is in the life sciences, and really that's kind of the next, I think, model, is reproducible science is a lot more critical. What does that mean? I think the issues that you see, whether at Stanford or many other places now over the past few decades, we don't do a really good job with reproducible science, right? It's just part of the trust. You submit your paper, you submit your data, and it kind of goes on until someone, like on a forum or some sort of a website, starts picking holes and kind of sticking at it. But I think in the future, as we see, you know, Chad GPT, all this technology coming up, it would be a lot more effective for our universities and systems where you submit your paper, you submit your data, you submit your analysis, and how you got to that image. Because if you had that process, it would be discovered in two days that it's been altered, not 10 years, 20 years later. So I think it will even further make us better as research institutions and more competitive, which we need. I believe yeah. competition is critical, especially where we're at. Yeah, John, thanks so much. Um, no, I appreciate I appreciate the point, and I you know I want to send it over to you, Jonathan. Um, this is clearly you know you cover biotech and and life sciences for for Stat. Are there g given that this has been this long term theme over the last you know decade about some findings in some fields being quite difficult to reproduce? You know whole whole lines of research over time um, that have have been shown not to not to work. Um, are there real changes that are necessary, particularly like say at the journal level? Like I think science and nature in, in Theo's investigation and in, in the broader investigation around Tessie Levine, they certainly don't come off looking very good. No, they they don't, at least not completely. And and by the way, a fun fact, before I got into journalism, I, I actually did my PhD in immunology. So I have a science background. I've, I've published a few papers and I actually got my PhD from Stanford of all places. Um, so, so I have a little bit of insight on both sides of that. Um, yeah, there, there definitely are, you know, I think the, the caller's point about the value of reproducing research and the difficulty that scientists have had doing that is a really big problem and a really important point. Um, there are all kinds of reasons why that isn't happening. Uh, I mean, you can read a scientific paper and oftentimes the methods section where researchers detail how they did, what they did, uh, actually isn't detailed enough 
uh, for you to then reproduce or attempt to reproduce that experiment in your lab. And now you got to email that researcher, you know, a half dozen times to figure out exactly what temperature they ran the experiment at and mm. where they purchased the chemical from and which uh, ordering lot of, of the material it was. So some of it is just being more rigorous in how we document mm. uh, the work that we do. Uh, the other problem, though, and this gets to the incentives that exist in, in science, is that it's not strongly in most researchers' interests to reproduce somebody else's work. So, you know, the way that you, for example, get a PhD is by reporting something new, making a discovery. It's not by reproducing, you know, your lab mates' results. Uh, you know, the way that you sustain a career is similarly is by publishing exciting new results in top tier journals. And everybody is essentially trying to publish in the same three big name journals. They're called Science, Nature, and Cell. Mm -hmm. uh, so, you know, in a world where there are a lot of graduate students and a lot of postdocs gunning for a limited number of faculty spots, there are a lot of faculty gunning for a uh, limited number of NIH grants. And the NIH's budget has not increased uh, you know, significantly in recent years. Uh, that creates a real pressure cooker. And, and that is definitely a structural factor that, that can contribute uh, to misconduct and, and fraud in science. Yeah. Theo, is that kind of broadly what you heard as you started to talk to people about how this could have happened? Yeah, I mean, I think um, definitely the fact that there are structural pressures uh, sort of baked into the scientific field right now is, is a big issue that goes well beyond, uh, you know, Martesi Levine and his lab. Um, I, I think, you know, I, I was very focused on this, you know, individual story and trying to, to understand how it happened. I think at, at the end of the day, most people don't think Mark Tessier Levine intentionally manipulated or uh, directed manipulation of research. That was the conclusion of the report. That is also, I, I've not, I've yet to hear an accusation from someone uh, that mm -hmm. disagrees with that. Um, but, you know, what people have said, and at this point I've talked to literally dozens of people who have worked with him going back several decades, um, and they describe him as a, you know, a man in a hurry uh, mm -hmm. is, is, is a constant phrase that I've heard. Somebody who um, is extremely ambitious uh, and, you know, that's not necessarily a bad thing uh, in, in any way um, and actually has been highlighted in a number of profiles. But um, yeah. it's also a, a good way of understanding how uh, some of this might have come to be. Yeah. We're talking about the news of Stanford University President Mark Tessier-Levine's resignation with Theo Baker of the Stanford Daily, Jonathan Wilson of Stat News, and Lisa Krieger, research reporter with the San Jose Mercury News. We'll be back with more right after the break. Support for Forum comes from San Francisco Opera. Set 10 years after a school shooting, the critically acclaimed opera Innocence takes us into a complex emotional journey where our understanding of innocence and guilt is constantly upended. Kaya Sariajo's ethereal score collapses the past into the present as a community of survivors grapple with how to move forward. Don't miss the highly anticipated American premiere of Innocence, June 1st through 21st. Learn more at sfopera.com. We've all got those parts of our house where the internet just won't go. 
Well, if you had wall-to-wall Wi-Fi from Xfinity, you could worry less about dead spots. Because with wall-to-wall Wi-Fi from Xfinity, you get fast speeds, reliable connection in every room, and power for all of your devices, even when everyone's online. That's wall-to-wall Wi-Fi only with Xfinity. Restrictions apply. Not available in all areas. Actual speeds vary. Welcome back to Forum. I'm Alexis Madrigal. We're talking about the resignation of Stanford University President Mark Tessier-Levine. We're joined by Theo Baker, Investigations Editor at the Stanford Daily, Jonathan Wosen, West Coast Biotech and Life Sciences Reporter at Stat News, and Lisa Krieger, Research Reporter with the San Jose Mercury News. Really interesting call on the line. Nicholas in San Francisco. Welcome. Hey, yeah. Thanks for uh, for having me. I just I was listening in, and I just wanted to uh, to call in. So I was a postdoc with uh, Mark Tessy Levine at Stanford. So I joined the lab in 2013, and then followed Mark out to. Uh, sorry, I, I was a postdoc at, at Rockefeller, and I followed him out to Stanford. Um, and I just wanted to sort of respond to what I'm hearing because I think you know the story that I had and my experience in the lab was was you know sort of different than a lot of what's been reported, and I think. I'll give the example of, of uh, you know, I think going back to the comment that was just made, you know, this, it is a pressure cooker. It's a very challenging environment. Being a postdoc, being a grad student is, is a very challenging, you know, moment in anyone's life. You're making very little money, working extremely long hours, and expected to publish these high-profile papers competing against biotech companies, which I now lead a, a company that I founded or co-founded, um, not with Mark, but with my, my previous uh, supervisor. And I think what I experienced with Mark was, was, the utmost rigorous science. And that's all I can say is that um, when I first joined his lab, I discovered this new uh, protein that I thought was implicated in this type of degeneration. It was going to be, you know, nature science or cell paper. So it was going to really further my career. I had, you know, all, you know, I had a huge bolus of data that suggested that what we were saying was real, but then, you know, Mark pushed me to go deeper and deeper on the questions. And we ended up making a knockout mouse of this pathway. And we didn't see these different, these effects that we saw with this drug. And so we went deeper on it and actually figured out that the drug, despite the fact that we could dose mice with this, this small molecule that had been reported by other companies, would have this effect. It was not mediated by the target that we knew it was, that we thought it was mediated by. And so Mark and I made the decision to not pursue that study. And I ended up working on a different project. And that's why I you know, followed him out to Stanford to finish that project up. And we published that in, uh, in Neuron in 2019. And several other labs have gone back and reproduced that work. So mm. I just want to say, you know, and, and I experienced the work of many of the people in the lab. So, for example, IDISCO is another thing that was published around the same time. That's been used by many different labs. And part of that work was because the Tessie Levine lab was unable to replicate work from other labs that said that there was this technique that could be used to clear tissues. And, it, you know, really was mm. able to replicate some of that work. And that drove the discovery of that IDISCO technique. And so, you know, I think this is the – I think the – Part of the story that's out there right now really ignores the complexity of science, and it ignores how discoveries are made. Discoveries are often made in, you know, where people have questions about those discoveries in the science, and then those get sorted out by people reproducing the findings. And I think in this case, the vast, vast majority of the work that was done in the Tessie Levine lab has been reproduced. So, for example, all those findings of Netrin and all these different um, effects that were published while using UCSF, et cetera, later, have all been reproduced by every lab that's followed up on that. Yeah. And so I think it's really zooming in on a small subset of papers. Again, you know, you guys are as familiar with this as, as we are as scientists, but sometimes people are put on authors of papers who don't even look at the publication, essentially, before it gets submitted. You know, they submitted one, uh, one you know, reagent to the paper or something else. And that's just how 
science is done, and, and they should be responsible for that, and that shouldn't happen, but that is how it's happened for many, many years. So right. uh, anyway, I just want to give that sort of positive context. No, and Nicholas, I... I have a few questions. Yeah. Oh, go ahead. Go ahead. No, the last thing I was going to say was just about his tenure as president of Stanford and president of Rockefeller. And I think I disagree a bit with what, what Lisa said about his tenure at Stanford, because I think there were very challenging, extenuating circumstances. For example, a, a worldwide you know, pandemic mm-hmm. that, that could impinge on, on his ability to lead in different ways. But I just want to comment more on Rockefeller, because what happened when, when Mark joined Rockefeller was that he went around to each of the constituents at Rockefeller University, which is one of the top biomedical research institutions in the entire world, and he asked each constituent what they needed to, to do their job better. And so I was, a, I was a postdoc there, and he asked the postdocs, what do you need? And we said, we need more child care. So he inaugurated the Mark Living Center for Child Care there. He asked the, the, you know, the, um, the, the, the PIs, and they said they needed new lab spaces. So he helped fundraise and fund this brand-new building over, uh, you know, right, right along the East River that provides, you know, huge amounts of new lab space with the first new building at Rockefeller for many years that provided that lab space to the faculty there. And then he also asked, and everyone said they needed more housing, and he helped to push for more housing for the, for the people there. So I think at the end of the day, I think the work he did at Stanford, especially what you just mentioned, inaugurating this new, uh, the first new center at Stanford in 70 years, is huge. And that's going to transform the research that's done at Stanford and everything else. And I think if he was given a chance to finish his tenure, he would have made you know, additional impressive mm-hmm. achievements without this you know, a three-year pandemic in the middle of, of, the, of the tenure. Yeah, Nicholas, I think, you know, what I'm getting from you, and I really appreciate your perspective as someone who worked, um, you know, closely, closely with him is, you know, this is a, this is a complex uh, person. This was science that um, succeeded in, in many ways over time. And I think that's uh, more or less un, uh, undisputed. And there were also um, these problems. And I think, you know, Lisa Krieger, I think I wanted to, to ask you about this, you know, and, and just, just respond um, to what Nicholas was saying about, you know, some of the successes that Tessie Levine did have. Um, absolutely. And, and the school of sustainability, that $1.2 billion is a complete game changer. Uh, so, you know, the, the job of a president is pretty much 80% fundraising, 10% ceremonial, that's where we see them, and then 10% making really high-level decisions that are really, really important. And Stanford's very much a provost-driven school. It's a strong provost school. The provost um, runs things on a day-to-day basis. But the president has a veto power over the provost and has has a large voice in some of these decisions. Um, the president has to be really inspirational, you know, has to give, give, give talks to alums and parents and donors and has to testify in Congress. And these are really, really big things, which is why I think as painful as the resignation has been, it really was the right thing to do. Um, and I think it would have been really hard for him to hold on for another year or two when there's still, you know, continuing debate over the, over this report. And mm. some people have complained that he's been absentee over the past couple of months and certainly distracted, which is totally understandable. And that's really hard when you're running a university of the caliber of science, I mean, a ca- caliber of Stanford. We could talk a little bit about Stanford's reputation, if you'll indulge yeah, me. sure. Alexis, thank you. I think it's taken a bit of a hit, um, but not in the long run. And someone told me yesterday, it, it, the metaphor was a very attractive young person who's waking up with a hangover. So um, there have been a series of things. Katie Meyer, of course, was tragic. Uh, there was a drug overdose death of a student whose mother's head of development for the medical school. So there's a lawsuit there that um, admissions bribery scandal, Scott Atlas, and then and then 
more recently, a crackdown on fraternities and theme houses, and then a change in the alcohol policy, and then this whole Stanford hates fun movement or fun strikes back movement. And then Sam Bankman-Fried, which has absolutely nothing to do with Stanford, except he's there and his parents are there. And then Elizabeth Holmes, which feels like a million years ago, um, but was all you know, at least in the, in the, mm-hmm. in the headlines um, and the at Theranos board had some university connections. So it's, it's a, it's a drip, drip, drip. And many, most of these things are not linked to the president. Um, but the reality is um, you've really, and, and, and I don't think his departure is going to change the day-to-day workings of the university, particularly this summer. Um, everybody's got their own job. There's a deep team. Um, very few people's job depends on reporting directly or speaking directly with the president. So I think things are going to go on fine, um, particularly this summer. Mm-hmm. However, um, anything big's on hold yeah. until we get a new permanent president. So, and and this is, you asked earlier if this is a little bit unusual, um, with both Hennessy and um, uh, Tessie Levine. Yeah. Gerhardt, there was a one-year um ramp up to look for a new permanent president. And we don't have that kind of time. Um, so come fall, there are going to be issues about affirmative action. Um, I think undergrad admissions is going to maybe legacies are going to get a really hard look. And then if the federal government <laughs> stops working, stops any place that depends on federal money for labs is going to be in a world of hurt. Hmm. So, hmm. Um, so there's a lot that needs to happen to get somebody permanent in place. Um, as I mentioned earlier, uh, Richard Soller, the new interim, is hugely respected. Um, I don't think he's a candidate for the job. He's seven; he'll be seventy-one in October. Um, but there's this committee for a replacement has their work cut out for them. You know, one of our listeners, and this one's coming to you, Jonathan. One of our listeners um, writes in to say this, and I wanted you to just answer if you feel like this is this is a fair criticism. Chris writes, please comment on the effect of, of Levine on Alzheimer's research. It seems to have diverted resources totaling tens of billions of dollars into the unproductive beta amyloid theory and away from more productive areas, as well as delaying progress by by twenty years. Is, is that a fair assessment? Uh, I I think that's overstated somewhat to be honest so the person you know writing in is referring to this hypothesis that um, has been in the alzheimer's field for many decades now that there's a you know protein fragment called beta amyloid that forms these toxic clumps and the thinking being or has been among some researchers for a while now that it's those clumps that really drive Alzheimer's disease to get worse and worse and worse over a person's life. Uh, there are a lot of holes in that theory that have have come to light now. Uh, and there's been a lot of criticism in recent years that researchers were so fixated on that one explanation for Alzheimer's that they didn't look at other proteins and at other you know contributing factors from inflammation uh, other and other mo- molecules too. Um, so it's it's a really contentious area. Uh, you know, beta amyloid drugs have have failed for many years, and it's only within the past year, essentially, that we have some, uh, you know, one medicine uh, that the FDA recently approved that that seems to be to have sort of modest effectiveness in slowing disease. Uh, anyway, that that whole story is much bigger yeah. than Mark Tessier Levine. Uh, mm-hmm. That that's very clear, and also uh, Tessier Levine's 2009 Genentech paper 
uh, which had something to do with amyloid protein, wasn't about beta amyloid. It was actually about a different fragment hmm. of the amyloid precursor protein called NAPP. So long story short, I don't think that would quite make sense as a criticism. I appreciate that. Thank you for that. Um, Stan in San Francisco, welcome to the show. Hi. Uh, excuse me. Um, uh, I, this is Stan Glantz. I'm a retired professor at UCSF who's done a lot of work on tobacco. And I'd like to bring another dimension to the discussion. Uh, and this is not to uh, denigrate any of the things that have been said so far. And that is the fact that the industry has weaponized getting papers retracted. Um, they, uh, there have been, Marcia, there, there, there was an organized campaign that successfully got a paper that we wrote about uh, e-cigarettes and heart disease retracted. Uh, there were attempts at two or three, getting unsuccessful attempts at getting two or three other papers we had written retracted. I know other colleagues who are working in the tobacco space who've been the subject of similar people going after them. I've been contacted by people who work on global warming, on pesticides and other areas. And so while, you know, it's very important to maintain the integrity of the scientific process, um, you, I think you have to recognize that every criticism isn't legitimate. And in fact, PubPeer uh, has become a major channel for these efforts by industry to discredit legitimate scientific research, which is turning up facts which are inconvenient to, to them and their products. Stan, thanks. So this is a, an, another really interesting dimension to this, you know, very, very complex uh, story. You know, a couple of other uh, comments um, touch on the same uh, a similar point to Jason points. Juliet writes, the resignation of Stanford's president, unfortunately, is not the end of the problematic ethics long present in Stanford's leadership. As a climate scientist, I would say that the financial relationship between fossil fuel companies and Stanford is as troublesome as the manipulated research. Fossil fuel companies have a long history of funding research at Stanford, primarily within the School of Engineering and Stanford Earth, now in the Door School of Sustainability. Funding typically comes directly from individual companies for specific research projects or through industry affiliate programs. What can be done to require more accountability of academia? And maybe a, a, on the same accountability note, another listener writes, how are the journals that publish these studies held accountable, the reviewers? Um, and I think that's a, a, another good point. You know, John, they want to come back to you on this uh, idea of the research funding. I mean, Stanford Long has had a tight relationship with with industry. Um, you know, historian Margaret O'Mara uh, has kind of really shown the way that Stanford positioned itself as a uh, a place to receive research uh, funding from companies through time. It's part of like what has made Stanford different. Um, do you think any of that is is likely to be revised? It certainly doesn't seem like it. Well, I, I can give you, a, I think, a much better answer on the journal front, if that's all right, in terms sure. of the scientific <laughs> yeah, journal sure. piece, <laughs> so, because I think I think we touched on that earlier in the conversation and, and didn't get too deep into it. So, so one of the things that that came up, um, you know, in that ninety-five page report uh, was both that Mark Tessier Levine didn't do enough uh, to 
correct issues when they were brought to his attention at, at different points throughout his career, going back to 2001. Uh, what also came to light from the report was that there were some instances where he reached out to journals, where he reached out to the journal Science around, I think, 2015 or 2016, and there were some email exchanges uh, that, that led to sort of you know, him submitting corrections uh, for at least some of the issues in a pair of papers. Uh, and then those corrections were mysteriously never actually run. And that's something that uh, we still don't really quite understand. I, I spoke with the editor-in-chief of Science who was not uh, of the journal Science, who wasn't editor-in-chief at the time. Uh, and you know he didn't have a great explanation for that either, except to say that they had hmm. clearly dropped the ball in, in, in that instance. Um, so, you know, there is there are issues around lab culture. There are issues around how science is done more generally. And there are also issues with how journals respond to, to problems that are brought to mm-hmm. uh, their attention. Uh, you know, w- one of the things that in theory is supposed to ensure the quality of, of data and science is peer review. So you submit a paper, a draft, uh, you know, three, you know, three or four scientists uh, give that a really detailed look over. They give you some feedback. There's sort of a, a back mm-hmm. and forth back of revisions. Sure. Yeah, and and you know you would think on some level that that should catch misconduct. That should catch manipulated data. You know that should be a failsafe. Uh, I've been thinking about that a lot over the past week, uh, and generally, that it, that that's not quite true for for a few reasons. I mean, one is that peer reviewers are other scientists who mm-hmm. are reviewing papers for free and are very busy. Uh, that's part of the issue. And, and really the system to some degree is based on the thinking that what's presented to you is uh, you know, done in good faith. Is, yeah. you know, these right. are real data points. They, they, don't, yeah. um, they don't question that. They look at whether you've interpreted your results in a way that's reasonable, whether you're missing certain experiments. Mm-hmm. Um, so on the journal side, there and may on the be peer some review side, there's some things that need to new, be new yeah. processes necessary. We've been talking about the news of Stanford University President Mark Tessier Levine's resignation, what it means for Stanford. Been joined by Jonathan Wilson, West Coast Biotech and Life Sciences reporter for Stat News, Lisa Krieger, research reporter with the San Jose Mercury News, and Theo Baker, investigations editor with the Stanford Daily, whose reporting broke this story wide open and led to the resignation of Mark Tessier Levine. Thank you so much to all three of you for joining us this morning. I'm Alexis. Oh, yeah. Thank you so much. Um, thank you to all of our listeners and callers. There was for some fascinating uh, moments. I really appreciate you all taking the time out of your mornings. I'm Alexis Madrigal. Stay tuned for another hour of Forum Ahead with Mina Kim. Funds for the production of KQED's Forum are provided by the John S. and James L. Knight Foundation, the Generosity Foundation, the Germanicos Foundation, and the Heising Simons Foundation. Support for Forum comes from San Francisco Opera. Set ten years after a school shooting, the critically acclaimed opera Innocence takes us into a complex emotional journey where our understanding of innocence and guilt is constantly upended. Kaya Sariajo's ethereal score collapses the past into the present as a community of survivors grapple with how to move forward. Don't miss the highly anticipated American premiere of Innocence, 
June 1st through 21st. Learn more at sfopera.com. We've all got those parts of our house where the internet just won't go. Well, if you had wall-to-wall Wi-Fi from Xfinity, you could worry less about dead spots. Because with wall-to-wall Wi-Fi from Xfinity, you get fast speeds, reliable connection in every room, and power for all of your devices, even when everyone's online. That's wall-to-wall Wi-Fi only with Xfinity. Restrictions apply. Not available in all areas. Actual speeds vary. All over the country... We need to improve reading in Wisconsin. Schools are changing the way they teach reading. I'm calling for a renewed focus on literacy. We have gotten this wrong in New York and all across the nation. And it's happening because of a podcast. I think your podcast has changed my life. And I'm going to share this podcast with everyone I meet. Sold a Story investigates how teaching kids to read went wrong. New episodes of Sold a Story are available now.